When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the Jordan Harbinger Show, you'll hear amazing stories from people that have lived them, from spies to CEOs, even an undercover agent who infiltrated the Gambino crime family. You're about to hear a preview of the Jordan Harbinger Show with Jack Garcia, who did just that. My career was 24 out of 26 years was solely dedicated working undercover. I walk in, I'm in the bar. Now there's a barmaid there, good looking young lady. She's serving me a drink. Hey, what would you like? I usually, my drink was, give me a kettle, one martini, three olives, glass of water on the side. I finish the drink, the guys come in, I'm gonna go, go in my pocket, take out the big wad of money. Bam, I give her a hundred dollars. If you're with the mob, I say, hey Jordan, you're on record with us. That means we protect you. Nobody could shake you down. We could shake you down, but you're on record with us. For more on how Jack became so trusted in the highest levels of the Gambino organization, check out episode 392 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. This is The Jesse Kelly Show. It is Monday. Let us begin with a happy story today. A story of joy. See, we're going to talk about you for a moment. And I want to I want to put you in a hypothetical situation here. So just kick back, close your eyes. Think about this. It's party time for you. We're going to sit you at the head of the table 
and we are going to throw a massive, massive party for you. And this is going to take you some time, so I need you to, I need you to brew on this. We are going to invite and obligate them to attend every single person you know. Friends, family, co-workers, there's no excuses. There's no little Johnny got sick tonight. Every single one of them are coming to this party. You thinking about them? All of them. Wife, kids, cousins, uncles. That lady you had your eye on. They're all there. How many are at that table? Everybody you know. Some people, that table is going to vary in size, but I want you to picture this. The table was one of those big, long, rectangular banquet tables. You are seated at the head of it. And you're looking down all the people you know. Bunch of them on one side of the table, bunch on the other side of the table. How long is that table? How many faces do you see there? How many people do you know? And you're sitting there looking at everyone, thinking about your life and all the people you know, and the left side of the table, all of them, every face, dies. On the spot. That's not some hypothetical that nobody's ever experienced before. That gave you a tiny, tiny preview of the Black Death. You see, we think we know carnage. Suffering, pain, and maybe you do to some extent. Don't we all, I suppose, at some level? But you don't know, and I don't know, the apocalypse. The closest you've ever come to experiencing that kind of loss is watching Thanos snap his fingers in the Avengers movie and having half the Earth disappear. Because that wasn't a hypothetical during the Black Death. Half of the people you knew died. Half of Europe. Half. More than half of entire cities, the major city, more than half, 60, 70% are the estimates of a city gone. That was the Black Death. It's the bubonic plague and actually a couple other kind of plagues combined. And it was in an era, this is the 1300s. In fact, there were several outbreaks for couple centuries after this, London had a big one in the 1600s that wiped out a third of its population. But anyway, the 1300s, and you really could not create a better scenario for a deadly virus or deadly bacteria to wipe out that many people. You see, everybody was crowded in together. People did not understand things like microbiology. 
and they didn't understand how things spread and where things spread. And understand this because we don't talk about this enough. The specifics of the Black Plague are this. Mainly it was carried by fleas. Now, again, when I said there's more than one kind of plague, there was. A lot of people died of this kind of plague. Another died of the airborne kind where it got in your lungs. You cough, someone breathes it in, they die too. But this one was mainly carried by fleas. Fleas that traveled on animals. Obviously, you've heard about rats. It was mainly black rats. There are several different kinds of rats, but black rats, of course, are the kind of rats that prefer to live around humans. They feed off the things humans feed off of. Well, the rats die of the plague, too. And the fleas, the fleas, they don't. But in order to get you really grossed out first thing on a Monday morning, the fleas... It's not just them biting you that gives you the plague. It's them vomiting in you that gives you the plague. Plague grows inside of them. They vomit it back out. You get sick. Now, the reason they call it the black plague was this. Once you get bitten, your lymph nodes in your body, as they do today with any kind of infection like that, will try to fight it. You have lymph nodes in your armpits. You have lymph nodes in your neck. You have lymph nodes in your groin. Once you get the black plague, that was the sign. A swollen, extremely painful lymph node in your neck, armpits, or groin area. 80% death rate. 80%. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know how to attack it. This was an extremely religious time. And and when I say religious, I don't mean, you know, just, oh, he's got a really close relationship with God. I mean, there there was the Pope and there was the clergy and this was the hierarchy and, and bad things only happen to bad people. And I guess we just haven't prayed enough. And it was that kind of time. Again, not a time where they understood bacteria. So some cities, they killed all the cats and dogs thinking that would help them stop the plague. They thought the fleas were infecting the animals, which may have been true to some extent. But remember what the fleas were mainly infecting? Do you remember the rats? What's, what's, what's the best way to get rid of rats? Any farmer will tell you. Cats. If you have a rat problem, what you want are cats. And if you go around and kill all the cats, you've officially taken away the only predator a city-dwelling rat even has. And so they multiply more and multiply more. I forget the name of the pope right now. I actually told this story one time, but one pope virtually doomed his area of authority because he viewed black cats, this is before the plague came down, he viewed black cats and all cats really as being the spawn of Satan, and ordered them all killed, actually offered a bounty for them. And the rats came with the plague, and there was nothing to kill the rats. Then, I guess as in now, disease, plagues like this were felt by the poor. Yes, plenty of rich people died of the Black Plague. No question. But what would you do? If you were super wealthy and you had a horrible outbreak in the 
city where you lived. And this was, again, not only to the cities. It spread other places, but the cities were the ones where you'd have 60%, 70% of the place gone. And what would you do if you're rich? Well, same thing I would do, right? Honey, pack up the kids. It's time to head to the lake house for the summer. I'm not faulting them for it. Good for you. The poor people don't have that luxury. The poor people are stuck in the dirt, in the squalor. And oh, dirt. I forgot to mention about the dirt. You see, we picture streets a certain way. Hang on, I'll tell you how we should be picturing streets. Jesse Kelly. You're listening to The Jesse Kelly Show. Talk about streets back in the day, cities back in the day, London, you know, Paris. We all picture the same thing because that's our, it's our nature. It's, it's our experience. We picture, I mean, pavement, concrete. Even if we don't picture that, maybe, maybe a lovely cobblestone as somebody rides a carriage down it. Um, streets were basically the grossest thing you've ever seen in your entire life back in the day. You see, this is an era before automobiles. And it wasn't a little oil and antifreeze in the streets. The streets were filled and I, I basically made up of poop. Lots of it. Human poop that got thrown out. Metric tons of horse poop that people used to go to and fro. Dog poop, cat poop, rat poop. Your street was not a lovely dirt street. It was not a lovely paved street. Streets were supposed to be the rankest smelling, foulest thing ever. And of course they would be, right? Puts into context those old westerns you used to watch, doesn't it, where John Wayne falls down in a muddy street? That wasn't mud where he fell down. And they didn't know what to do. You would think the world was coming to an end. You know multiple times they would sail out to a, to a ship that looked like it wasn't doing anything, and they would they would board the ship and find... A ghost ship with every single person on board dead from the Black Plague just sailing in the ocean. Would that not be something creepy? Children, I just read a story this morning. You see, they they nailed you in your home lots of the time. I come home tonight. It's it's the 13th century. I'm a, uh, uh-oh, feeling the neck there. Looks like I got a swollen lymph node. I think I got the plague. Somebody pops by, says, oh, man, he's got the plague. Do you know the next sound I would hear? This is a reality. The next sound I would hear would be the town blacksmith 
putting a padlock on my front door and the police stationing somebody out front. So nobody, not wife, not kids, nobody is allowed to leave my home. And when you're dealing with a disease that spreads like that, they're all going to die. As one person put it from that era, infection may have killed its thousands, but shutting up its ten thousands. You see the rich packed up in their carriages and rode off to the country homes. The poor got locked inside their homes to die. Even the clergy left. You see, this is not like today where, for the most part, pastors were not some rich celebrity types. See... Back then, they were. Pastors were the rich celebrity types. Today, that's not the case. I mean, again, for the most part. They packed up and left with the other rich people. They were emphatic about how you were buried back then. We still care about it today, but nothing, nothing like back then. Being buried was a sacred thing. But it was part of how you got to heaven. It was part of your tradition. It was part of this and so many people died, they stopped caring, and they, there was no one to bury them. And they would just dig massive trenches by the churches and shovel all the bodies into it and throw a layer of dirt on top of it to get ready for the next morning where they had to shovel more bodies on top of it. They estimate, worldwide, they estimate 100 million They estimate the worldwide population, not even making this up, dropped by 25% during the Black Plague. Again, the worst, by a mile, the worst disaster ever visited on the face of the planet, if you don't count God's flood that killed everyone but Noah in the fam. Everybody. Remember, half your table, the left side's gone. Everybody. On top of the tearing apart of the social fabric, you see so many people died. You know how we get on the news every day today and we see Donald Trump at the press conference and then the the governor will get up and say something that afternoon. Oh, hey, the mayor's doing a little state of the city thing. So many people died. They couldn't replace the politicians fast enough, and some places just went without government because they all died. Everyone dead. Oh, did I mention anti-Semitism came along with it? You see, a society will tear itself apart in horrible ways when something like this comes down. They blame the Jews for this. Now, there's a long history to this part of this was uh, Catholicism was big, 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 big back then. You think it's big now? It was big back then. Part of this era's Catholicism barred Catholics from handling money. They viewed it as basically a sin, which is why you get the stereotype Jewish banker thing. You know, Jews control all the money because Jews obviously stepped up and was like, well, uh, well somebody needs to run a freaking bank here. And if You've been told your whole life that handling money is sinful. And everywhere you look, there's a Jew running a bank. What are you going to think? Plus, you people killed Jesus, Chris. <laughs> Quit. Anyway. So they would, Strasbourg, Germany, for instance, they just rounded up 
Right after the Black Plague, they just rounded up 2,000 Jews and tortured them all until they admitted to poisoning the wells with Black Plague, and then they burned them at the stake. Yes, it's not a lesson in anti-Semitism today. It's just a, that's what happens. That's what we do. But believe it or not, this is not really a Black Plague story. Do you know how all this began? How it really began? The wiping out of Europe? With an argument. Just a little argument between a couple of bros. A little religious argument. Let us backtrack just a little bit to the Mongols. Remember I've told you about the Mongols before. Genghis Khan and the greatest kingdom ever. The greatest conqueror ever. Fast forward about 100 years after Genghis Khan is done slaughtering everybody on earth. The Mongol empire is broken up into differing empires. Now you should know. No, it is nowhere near the glory of the Genghis Khan reign as far as power goes. However, the broken up pieces of the Mongol era, still really, really powerful. And I mean really powerful. One of, if not maybe the most powerful portion of it was called the Golden Horde. I know it's a sweet name. I just wanted to say it. That made up the northwestern portion of what was once Genghis Khan's entire empire. Now, remember Genghis Khan was actually, for all the millions he slaughtered, extremely religiously tolerant? And that didn't necessarily carry over with all of the broken-up Mongol empires. The Golden Horde was a Muslim empire, for the most part. Not super anti-Christian, but a little. Not super anti-Jew, but a little. It was a Muslim empire. You see... Up in the city of Kaffa, or close to the city of Kaffa, the Mongols had these Italian tradesmen. The tradesmen were from Genoa. And they told the tradesmen, look, I understand you're Christians. It's all good. But you do know trade. And you're right here on the Black Sea. You can get a map and see the Black Sea. It's a major, major trading hub. You see, your city's right here on the Black Sea. So here's what we're going to do. You're really good at trade. You handle all the trade here. On the Black Sea. Obviously, you're going to pay us our a little money off the top. And everybody will win. You get rich, we get rich, everybody wins, right? And for a while, everybody was running. The Golden Horde was reeling it in. Until that argument. Hang on. Close to the port city of Kaffa back in 1345, 1343, although the city was there the whole time, is a tiny city called Tana, tiny little town. And in this town, some of those merchants, those tradesmen who were running the ports of Kaffa, making a fortune for themselves and the Mongols, they got in an argument with a Muslim dude. No one knows the circumstances, how it happened, but the Muslim dude ended up dead. 
not the end of the world. And if you're wondering how this is going to tie in with the Black Plague, well, you're just going to have to be patient for a second. You see, those merchants then knew they were in quite a bit of trouble. One, a Muslim dude was dead and the Golden Horde was Muslim. Two, as you may remember from previous shows, the Mongols did not play around with the law. These are people who would slaughter their own men happily for disobeying even slightly. They took off. The merchants did, and they ran to the big city of Kaffa and said, "Hey, uh, can you protect us? I'm sure the Muslims are, co- or I'm sure the Mongols are coming to kill us." And the sea, the city of Kaffa, for better or for worse, said, "Sure, come on in. Screw them." Generally, if you know your history at all, not a great, not a great decision. So, here's the deal. The Mongols sent an army, and they knocked on the door of the city and said, "Uh, go ahead and sell those those guys out because we need to kill them. And the city said, no, I don't think we will. And the Mongols, well, said, okay, then you're under attack. And the Mongols laid siege to the city, and they lost. Like I said, this is not the Genghis Khan era. They were very powerful, but they were not all powerful. They actually lost about 15,000 men. Finally gave up, took off, said, all right, we're done. Only, I mean, they're still Mongols, so they're still mad. And they gathered up another army and came back and laid siege again. And this time it's not going very well again. Only it's not going very well for a very different reason. You see, the plague was tearing through China at the time, was tearing through the Asian steppe at the time. And... Unbeknownst to them, the Mongols brought it to the Black Sea. And when the Mongols brought it to the Black Sea and they were laying siege to the city of Kaffa, their men started dying. A lot of them. And this was not going well. And let's be honest, they're still Mongols. These are not people who obey the rules of warfare. These are not people who lose lying down. So they stopped throwing rocks and trees with their catapults into the city, trying to knock down the walls, trying to knock down the buildings. Instead, they loaded up each and every person who had died of plague onto a catapult and began launching them over the city walls into Kaffa. Now, try to picture this moment as best you can. I don't mean one or two people. I mean for a month, a month, all day, every day. If you look up in the sky, you can see a dead, smelly, rotting corpse hurling over your city walls to splatter on your streets and buildings and spread plague all over the place. Mongols gave it up again because their army was dying, packed it up, went home. The problem is people in Kaffa, they didn't. They packed it up and hopped onto ships. And the rats that had the fleas with the plague hopped onto the ships. And people with the plague hopped onto the ships. 
And they sailed everywhere, but really the main problem is they sailed to the city of Constantinople. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you, but know this. If you could roll Los Angeles, New York City, Hong Kong, Shanghai, London, all up into one, it still wouldn't be as big of a deal as Constantinople was back in the day. It was the trading hub of the planet, and as soon as that place gets the plague, everywhere gets the plague. And those Italians sailing from Kaffa into Constantinople, unbeknownst to them, brought about the death of half of Europe. Half of Europe. These things, the terrible things that happen in history, especially diseases, they almost always start the same way. Slightly different circumstances, but they almost always start the same way, and they almost always play out the same way. Something small happens. Someone gets sick. That someone who's sick doesn't realize what they have. The, quote, experts and doctors of the time don't realize exactly what they have or how they have it. So what do they do? Without enough information, they panic. They make decisions. Decisions that inevitably doom other people. Uh, Quick, there's a black plague out. It's super infectious. Everybody, get inside and lock your doors. Wait, what? Does that sound familiar at all? We have an infectious disease right now. We know this from things like the Spanish flu and surprise, surprise, God did it right. Fresh air and sunshine are excellent for people who are sick. I know you're going to find that shocking. So what do we do? Everyone get inside. Uh, Go ahead and let me catch you on the beach. You'll be placed under arrest. I'll tell you what we're doing. We're closing down the the state parks and walking trails. I have video today of, I believe it's Venice Beach, them taking this gigantic skate park. It's one of those big concrete areas where skateboarders go and ramps and things like that. You know. Outdoors, sunshine, fresh air, exercise. They filled it up with sand so the skateboarders couldn't skate anymore. And on top of the panic and the terrible decisions made by the experts that make everything worse, you remember the killing of the cats as well? Well, they make everybody less healthy. Get inside, order takeout, watch Netflix, the gyms are closed. Do you know what they ordered the people to do during the plague? They ordered them to smoke. I'm not, I'm not making that up. They viewed bad air as being the cause of the Black Plague. And I don't mean, you know, the infectious part that comes out of somebody's lungs. They actually viewed some air that came out of the earth as being bad. And so they wanted to cover that up, and they thought smoking would actually help. And when I say they wanted you to smoke, I don't mean they said, hey, you might want to think about smoking. I mean they ordered children to smoke.
here, smoke this. And the children who refused were beaten. When I say they, I don't, I don't just mean anybody. That was the experts. That was the physicians. Those were the learned men of the day. Just do what you're told, peasant. You can't even read. Trust me, I'm a doctor. Oh, remember what I told you about the rich people? Packed up and left? Yeah, hang on. I've got something on that. The Jesse Kelly Show. Remember the rich people who packed up and left town during the Black Plague? Good luck, poors. You're on your own. This is a tweet from Patton Oswald, famous comedian, actor. I'm not exaggerating here. This is what he tweeted. This is verbatim. I won't, I won't fluff it up. Quote, Anne Frank spent two years hiding in an attic, and we've been home for just over a month with Netflix, food delivery, and video games, and there are people risking viral death by storming state capitol buildings and screaming, open Fuddruckers. They don't understand the separation, and people don't understand how you live. And let me reinforce this again. I've been disgusted by politicians and people still getting a paycheck throughout this process, scolding working people about wanting to get back to work, telling them to shut up, go home. That, that's so easy to say. But the thing is, I, I don't begrudge them the money. I'm not that guy. Get rich. Get famous. Do it. I'm rooting for you. I'm rooting for Patton Oswald. I don't want him poor and destitute. I want him out there making it. I hope the next 10 people that make it, I hope you make it. It's not that. What bothers me is when you get to that point and one, you all of a sudden feel like you're better than normal people. And two, you don't even bother trying to put yourself in the shoes of someone else. We're all home with Netflix and food delivery and video games. Um, You remember that food I told you about I ordered on Friday night for a date night with my wife? We had a little date night in the house. We made the kids wait tables and stuff like that. By the way, it turned out awesome, Chris. turned out absolutely awesome. I'll get to that in a second. It cost $58. Now, I realize $58 is nothing to uh, Patton Oswald, but um, uh, I'm not doing that every night. Are you doing that every night? And even if you are, again, I don't begrudge it to you. That's fine. Do it. D- deliver it up. The restaurants need the business. If you can afford to do it and love it, do it. I've always said, if I ever get mega rich, I'm not a big 
material guy. It makes me sound really, really, really righteous, Chris. I'm not a materialistic person. No, I'm the worst person on earth. I just don't value boats and jet skis and fancy cars. I wouldn't sell my house or my pickup. I just, that's just not who I am. But I would eat out like every single meal. I love eating out. I just can't afford it, so I don't. So if you can, that's fine. But again, understand something. Other people are waiting in line for hours at the local food bank to get emergency food. This disconnect, it it doesn't work. Know what you don't know. And you heard we had a guest on the other day. You heard her talk about this disconnect. And here's the deal. The journalists go through it too. The truth of the matter is this, because journalism doesn't pay a lot, especially right out of college, the people who go into journalism are not just the people who want to be journalists, it's the people who can afford, meaning their families can afford to have them grow, uh, go into journalism. If you grew up poor, you don't have the option to go be a freaking journalist. When you go to college, if you even get to go to college, brother, when you graduate, I got to make some money. Uh, uh, If I don't make money, I don't eat. So what you have in the journalism field is a bunch of, you know, let's be honest. It's like 60, 65% upper middle class white kids. So they don't understand working people, which again is fine if that was your life. If your whole life was, you know, Fancy cars at 16 and, and sipping mimosas, that's fine. But understand that you don't understand how working people actually live. You don't understand. And I'm not saying open up everything tomorrow and everyone will go back to work. That's absurd. Of course they won't. A lot of people will stay home like they did during the Spanish flu. When we didn't shut down the entire economy, we hurt the economy because of the flu, but we gave people the freedom to make that choice. And these huge factories would open up. Half the people would stay home too scared, but half would go to work. Why? Well, it's my job to provide for my family. If we can't eat, I am going to risk the virus to go to work. My family has to eat. We have to stay alive. So, again, I'm happy, totally happy for people who succeed, even people I I don't like. I'm not that guy. I'm filthy rich people. I'm not that guy. Maybe I'll be one one day. It's not my overarching life goal, but it's fine. I'm not that guy. But if you are in that situation, especially during times like this, and you've thrown the family in the carriage to head to the lake house while these poors deal with the plague. That's fine. Good for you. I do the same thing for my family. But at least know that you don't then get to, from your lake house, send memos out scolding everyone else how they should be happy with how they're living right now. Stop this we're all in this together crap. We're not. We all have very, very, very different situations right now. All right, I'll tell you about that date night, Chris, and I'll tell you about this sweet new show I found. Hang on.
Chris is making fun of me for saying I love eating out. I do. I have to be honest. It's one of my favorite things in the world to do. I love it. If I could, I would eat out three times a day. Maybe more. Call me crazy. Call me nuts. I under, Look, especially, especially dudes, I understand not every guy loves to eat out. I get that. I do. I do. So we had a date night on Friday night. Now, when I say date night, I mean a quarantine date night where we were going to have a date night in the house. And we have two sons. And those sons, time for them to grow up, figure out how to earn some money. And so we forced them to give us the restaurant experience at home. And I have to be honest, they were kind of freaking awesome. (laughs) I'll explain in a second. Jesse Kelly Show. This is the Jesse Kelly Show. So, we wanted to have a date night. We wanted the boys to do the work for it. You know, they're 9 and 11. And we promised them tips, depending on how well they did. You know, we're, not, we're, not, we're not running slave labor around there. Obviously, you're going to do your chores without being paid for it. But we wanted to give everybody the restaurant experience. <laughs> so, so they get dressed up, Chris. They actually got dressed up in what they considered to be dressed up. The youngest actually put on a sport coat but blue jeans. The oldest skipped the sport coat but found a clip-on tie <laughs> that I had to put on for him. He couldn't get the clip-on tie on. And we walk in. We walk over to the front door. We walk in, you know, hand in hand like we're at a restaurant. And immediately we walk around the corner, and there they are. One of them has set up an old computer we don't use anymore acting like it's like the hostess's station where he can check us in and see if there are any tables. And the other one, to his credit, the oldest actually had a piece of notebook paper out to take our drink order at the door, which was a little strange. But as soon as we walk around the corner, they burst out laughing. They couldn't keep a straight face, even though I was trying to. Finally, we get them to escort us to the table. They escort us back there, and we had ordered... Now, nothing fancy. I said it was expensive, but that's because we ordered from a fancy pizza place. It was still pizza and salad, but one of those high, you know, high for We imported our brick oven from Venice 3,000 years ago or something like that. It's one of those type places. Not exactly my cup of tea, but eh, it's fine. Whatever. It's fine. I didn't, I don't find that pizza to be markedly better than Papa John's, but whatever. We brought our little Caesars. Ooh. Anyway, no, that's, don't get me sidetracked. So they escort us out back. We decide we have this little table out back outside 
because we didn't want them right next to us the whole time. We wanted an actual date night. <laughs> and so they take our drink orders. Uh, I get a beer. The wife gets a, a glass of wine. And we're waiting because the food isn't quite there yet. And I have what I did was I ordered all this on a, a DoorDash or Uber Eats. I forget which one. Food gets there. I tell the boys to go get the food at the door. They go get the food. They come back. We give them what we want, which is what they ordered, and they start plating it. And they start bringing us napkins, only they don't know where the napkins are, so they give us this little strand of paper towels. <laughs> and then so then I get my pizza. The wife gets her salad. And I ask, because I'm a man, Chris, I ask for a side of ranch with my pizza. And I'm anxious to see how this will turn out. They go back in. And they come back out and they say, well, they didn't bring us any ranch. I said, okay, well, do you think there's a solution for that? Where do you think the ranch might be? Oh, oh, okay, okay. And so they take off and head back inside. And they come back out and they bring me, they couldn't find apparently any bowls or like little side things, which we have in all the areas that they know. They bring me a shot glass full of ranch dressing to dip my pizza in it. (laughs) (laughs) and then you know to their credit i mean look they were really conscientious a little too conscientious you see it started out good they have one of those little uh music box thingies where that you plug it in and it has all kinds of music loaded on it already so you can actually say something to it or, or or press a button to it and say hey Play uh, 70s music and it'll play it. Play classical music, it'll say. You can say play romantic music and it has a couple built-in playlists for romantic music. So they bring it out and they plug it in. If I could, this is so you can listen to romantic music. And they say they 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 have it play romantic music and then they point to this little area by the patio and they're like, and you can use this as a dance floor. So they're being super conscientious, right? The wife's heart is melting, but then. I turned down the volume, and one of them told me, please don't touch the music in our restaurant. Please just ask me, and I'll change it. (laughs) And then they started because you can tell they're in this for the money. You know, I respect the hustle. I respect the hustle. They want to do this for the money. So they start checking on us like every 30 seconds. I can't even get a conversation out with the wife, and they'll just take turns checking on us over and over and over and over again. And finally, for some reason, they decided that wasn't quite enough. We have this uh, short little table we got from Costco, not to brag. We have this short little table beside the one that we're eating on with a couple little dumpy patio chairs on. It's nothing fancy. They apparently decided checking on us every 30 seconds wasn't enough. So the youngest comes out and says, all right, I'm just going to wait right here in case you need me. And sits down at the table beside us. <laughs> and I'm looking at the wife and I throw my hands up. And of course, because she's a big softie, she's like, oh, let him go. He's trying to help. And then the oldest decides, well, he's bored inside without his brother. So he comes out and they start wrestling on the chair beside us while we're having our romantic time. So to say it was a rousing success would probably be an overstatement. It was hilarious. Uh, If you, by the way, if you follow me on Twitter, I have some pictures up of all this. I even have a little video up of it. If you want to go see, it's from a couple days ago. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Kelly DC, but you will probably, you'll probably enjoy it. It's pretty freaking hilarious. These kids, they make me laugh.
Speaking of children, we sit down last night, Chris, and we have, well, something you'll understand one day as soon as you pony up, marry that broad you're with, and start putting babies in her. It's time to expand. Good people must go forth and multiply, Chris. We need you to start having some kids. Anyway, what you will know is once you have a family, once you have a wife, once your kids get old enough to think and have opinions for themselves, one, you'll be shocked at the ways your kids are similar to you. Two, you'll be twice as shocked at the ways they're totally different from you. I mean, they really are just their own human beings with their own interests and feelings. It sucks. I wanted a couple robots. You really notice this when it comes time to the day's done, everything's done, work's done, and it comes time to let's pick a board game. Let's pick a movie to watch at night. Let's pick a new show to watch. Because getting all four people to agree on something, totally impossible. And in my house, the dynamic is this. I am, I know you're going to find this very shocking. I am not the artistic type. Singing and dancing and, and playing an instrument and drawing and things like that. Not only can I not do this, Nobody in my family can do this. We are just not, we are not an artistic people. We're, that's not who we are. Of course, because opposites attract, the wife is exactly the opposite. She was a gymnast. She was on the Canadian national team. She was on the University of Arizona. Like she's this elite gymnast and she loves singing and dancing and all these. And so, of course, she loves musicals. I would rather die than watch a musical. The oldest, because he's my, you know, kind of, kind of science nerdy type. He's the one that I told you, you can dump out just a box of random Legos and he'll build you a spaceship. And he really will build you like a sweet looking spaceship. He, of course, wants to watch some kind of dinosaur documentary. Well, that sounds freaking brutal. Absolutely brutal. The youngest, he's a comedian. He thinks he's hilarious, which he is actually kind of hilarious. He wants to watch SpongeBob, which he and I would probably agree more than anyone else on something like that or whatever new dorky comedy. Me, everyone knows what I want. I want to watch my newest World War I documentary. That's what I want to watch. Everybody knows that. Shut up, Chris. I know it's nerdy. Like, that's legitimate, you know. When I sit down on a Friday night, if I have the house to myself, which is rare, but if I do, you know, you're firing up the new Netflix series, I'm firing up World War II in color, and I'll watch it for three or four hours. Like, that's legitimately fun for me. But we find this new show last night, and it had the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. Hang on. Follow, like, and subscribe on social at Jesse Kelly Show. I should clarify when I say my family's not artistic, it goes beyond not being artistic. It's being openly hostile to the arts in general. 
It's one thing to not be artistic, which we're not. But this is how I was raised, and I want you to understand this because I get these emails, and you're welcome to email me, jesse at jessekellyshow.com, jesse at jessekellyshow.com. And if you miss any part of the show, the whole thing's on the iHeart. It's on Google. It's on Spotify. It's on Apple. The show's everywhere. Chris podcasts it right after the show. He separates out the history story and then puts the whole show as well. So it's all there. But I get these emails, and people genuinely want to know why I'm a terrible person. Or if they're trying to be polite and they don't want to put it like that, I get this question a lot. Why are you this way? Why are you the way you are? It's my father. When I say openly hostile to the arts, I'm not making this up. We would travel. My dad would take me hunting in Montana. And Montana is a gigantic state. People don't know about it. It's it's the fourth biggest state. It's just, it's huge. And lots of times to go hunting, you would go hunting in places totally, totally, totally separate from where you are. Oh, you want to go pheasant hunting? Well, where I live, there weren't any pheasants to hunt. You had to go to eastern Montana. And it would not at all be out of the question to have a three, four, five hour road trip to go hunting where you were hunting, or more. I mean, I've taken the longer ones. We weren't allowed to have music on in the car. And I need to put this in context for you. There were no smartphones. I don't want to get all old fogey. We had to walk to and fro both ways. But this is, again, there's no smartphone era. So I'm not sitting here with a smartphone in my hands. You know, whatever, I'll just... I'll just get on Facebook and look at funny videos. There were no smartphones. In fact, there were no cell phones for the most part, period. They just then had, like, truck phones were getting in. And my dad wasn't a big talker either. So three, four, five hours, no talking. It's not like he banned it. He just didn't have a lot to say. But music was absolutely banned. He would not turn it on. If I even attempted, because I did several times, as you can imagine, Dad, can we please, I, I, I even got a Led Zeppelin tape here, which I know you like. Can we turn that on? No, I don't want that crap on. Well, I don't understand. I don't, I don't understand why we're just riding in the car. I don't need to hear that. And it wasn't like an anti-rock and roll thing. That was his kind of music. No music. None. So when I say not artistic I mean, openly hostile to the arts, period, period. Back to my show. So we're hunting last night for a show because we're all four seated and we're like, ah, whatever, let's find something to watch this Sunday night. Came across this hostile nature show, Chris. It was on, uh, I think it's on National Geographic. It's called Hostile Nature. You know Bear Grylls? For those of you who don't know Bear Grylls, he used to do that show. Gosh, what was it? What was the name of his show, Chris? Where he was—it's not Running Wild. That's his new show. He used to do the Trying to Survive show out in the wilderness. What's it called? Man versus Wild. That's right. Man versus Wild. And Bear Grylls was this super—is this super stud dude? He was in the British SAS. Not British SAS. If you don't know, that's like their Navy SEALs. In fact, the SAS was before. Our Navy SEALs, and in fact, much of what our Navy SEALs do, they copied off the British SAS. I mean, some of the baddest dudes on the planet are these SAS guys. 
I remember it was a few years back that their SAS guy story came out about him running across. It was three or four. It might have even been five Taliban guys one at a time in a dark cave in Afghanistan, and he killed them all with a hammer. <laughs> That's sweet. Anyway, SAS dude, Bear Grylls, and he did these man versus wild shows where they would drop him in the middle of nowhere, you know, a deserted island, a freezing mountain in the middle of the desert, and he would drink drink the juice out of the dung of some animal, you know, to stay alive. I'm not exaggerating. I watched him do that and dry heaved in my chair. That like That's the kind of thing he would, well, they say you can drink your pee two or three times and still be fine. And it's like, yes, but you don't have to actually show us that. You could just tell us. I don't need to see it. I genuinely do not. Oh, no, he's going to do it anyway. Yep, he just did it. He just drank his pee. You know what? I'm I'm going to brush my teeth. I'm not going to eat again tonight. Well, he got himself in a little bit of a pickle because Man vs. Wild caught fire. Absolutely caught fire. Everybody loved the show. Everybody did. And then somebody caught him filming it. And he wasn't actually staying out in the wild. See, when he was doing one of these Survive the Mountains trips... He was heading back to the hotel at night. Somebody caught him at a luxury hotel during filming, staying in the hotel that night, waking up the next morning, downing a big plate of blueberry pancakes and bacon before he went back out. (laughs) Just know this. And I don't want to be Debbie Downer or party pooper for you here, but know this. Virtually all of the reality television you're watching is scripted on some level. My mother is this, she's obsessed with a certain reality show that I'm not going to name, and it's not that I'm protecting myself or the show. I don't like to be the person that craps on someone else's fun. It's a very, 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 very popular reality show that almost all of you have seen at least once, and if I mentioned the name of the show on my life, you would know the name of the show. It's virtually all written. The entire thing is written. And I don't mean somebody jots down a couple notes. I mean, they're they're handed scripts. All that drama that pops up, that's it's all written out. Anyway, forgetting about this, Bear, Bear Grylls has a new show. Now, I haven't actually seen him in this show yet. He may just be the narrator of it. It's called Hostile Planet. He showed up real quick in the beginning. And this was the episode on mountains. I haven't finished it yet. So if you finished it, don't be emailing me and spoiling the show. But it takes place, obviously, in the mountains. And there's this kind of mountain goose. And geese, these geese, have to lay their eggs in the mountains. The mountains are a very hostile place. Hostile for weather reasons, hostile for predator reasons. There isn't a ton of food up there. And as you may imagine, baby geese would be an extremely appealing meal for predators. Part of the reason predators love to eat baby whatever, baby geese, baby birds, baby everything, is because it's a meal a predator can always eat and get virtually no injuries in return. We like to imagine all these predators as being superhuman. Well, super animal, not superhuman. Shut up. You know what I'm talking about. The truth is 
every predator has a cost-benefit analysis they have to weigh. Yes, I can attack this animal. What is the chances I'm going to get injured doing so? Because if I'm a lion and I get injured attacking that hippopotamus, I'm dead. I actually saw a sweet nature show with that happening one time, Chris, where all these lions were trying to take down a hippo. And you know hippos are these gigantic, extremely powerful. They're not these big, fat, adorable, dumpy things. They kill more people than like crocodiles every year. They're very aggressive, very strong. And this hippo turns around and gets a hold of this lion's face and clamps down on this lion's head. has his whole head in his mouth. It was a she, actually, and chucks this lion away. And then they pan to the lion after. I'm pretty sure the hippo lived and the lion, the entire lion's bottom jaw was hanging off of her head. It was basically missing. And, of course, the narrator acts very sad about it. And it was sad. But the narrator's like, and this this means that lion's going to die of starvation. In fact, I'm pretty sure the pride just flat out kicked her out the next day. There's no, you're no good here. You're, you're dead now. Right? So on this, crap, we're out of time. All right. We're going to have to have a quick guess, and then I'll get back to my sweet nature show. Hang on. Listen, Captain. The Jesse Kelly Show. Now, hostile... Hostile nature is the show, and there are these geese, and they're in the mountains. And I want you to picture Rocky Mountains. Not the Rockies, although this may have been the Rockies. I wasn't paying attention. But these are Rocky, Rocky Mountains. And jagged rocks and shale rock, loose rock all over the place. So the geese have to find a safe place to nest. And there's this... The only way I can describe it is a tower. He may have even called it a tower. It is a 400-foot-tall skyscraper made of rock. It's not connected to the other parts of the mountain. It's weird. Like, you can tell how it fell away. It is it's straight vertical, like a skyscraper. Picture any skyscraper. It, that's how it looks. It's a 400-foot tower. It's close to the other parts of the mountain. It's not like it's the only one. I'm just This is the one I'm talking about. It's close to the other parts of the mountain, but it's not touching them. So the geese, they come up with this thing. Apparently, this is a thing they do. It's not the one, not the one time they did it for the show. They lay their eggs on top of the tower. Not a problem, right? Lay your eggs. Apparently, they have to sit on these eggs for 25 days, I think it said. After 25 days, beep, 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 little hatchling comes out. They have three little baby geese. Only now there's a problem. You see, the geese, the baby geese, they have to eat. Well, I know what you're thinking, Jesse. I've seen enough bird shows. The mother goose can just fly it out and eat some fish or grass or whatever and come back and just vomit it in the little baby's mouth. Uh-uh. These geese are not capable of doing that. When I say the baby geese have to eat, I mean, they have to eat. I think it was within 24 hours. It might have been 48 or they're dead. Gone. Baby needs to eat. Baby needs to eat right now. Baby's on top of a 400-foot tower. 
Oh, did I mention baby can't fly? Baby has to get off this tower to eat. Baby cannot fly. Food cannot be brought to the baby. And mother and father goose cannot fly with the baby. Are you seeing where I'm going? Are you wondering exactly how this problem is going to be resolved? Yeah, I was wondering it too until I watched the first little baby goose inch up to the edge of the 400-foot rock tower in the mountains and dive off the end. Dive off the end with no parachute, without functioning wings, without anything. The baby simply jumps off the end of the freaking tower. And I'm watching this. And honestly, I've seen a thousand nature shows in my life, if not more. That's what I used to watch with my old, with my old man when I was a kid. We'd watch uh, that Marty Stauffer nature shows. I've seen a million nature shows. You name them, I've seen them. I've never seen anything like this in my life. I leapt up out of my chair, and so did my boys. And we're just sitting there like, wait, what? He jumped. And they're, they're, they're filming it as it slowly descends. I mean, it's in slow motion, but as this little baby bird is sailing through the air 400 feet down, and I'm like, what? It just commits suicide? What? And sure enough, on my freaking life, I'm not making this up. You can watch the show. The baby, boom, lands on the rocks below, bounces a few times, and then rolls over. Totally alive. I know. I don't know. I know, Chris. I've never seen anything like it. I don't know what happens. And then and then the announcer gets on there. Maybe Baron is, well, the baby is, as you can see, still alive, but 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 a little stunned. <laughs> I'm like, what? Yes, but 400 feet above, the baby not only lives, the baby's fine, at which point some eagle or hawk swoops in and snatches it up in its claws and sails away. And I'm like, what? Like, what is this show? It's the most amazing thing. And remember, I said there were three babies. I'm not finished yet. Baby number two steps up to the plate to try this again. Well, you remember how I said baby number one? Flew through the air 400 feet down and made it just fine. I guess that doesn't happen every time. Because baby number two tried it. And baby number two caught a little wind shear. And instead of softly landing on the jagged rocks below, the baby flies down a little ways. And the wind like blows him back and boom, he bounces off the rocks. Then he bounces again and keeps flying and boom, bounces off the rocks. Long story short... When that baby goose finally stopped moving, that baby goose never moved again. Which brings me to number three. Number three. Number three. Having just witnessed, having just witnessed what happened to his two brothers and sisters, steps up, same thing. Boom. Lands. Lives. Not only lives, trots a mile down to the local grassy river, hops in the water with both his parents to survive. That is what they do. This was not like an exception to the rule. These geese, 
They park it up in the mountains, and they just dive bomb their young off the hill. <laughs> Most amazing thing on my – you know what? Go watch it and then email me, jesse at jessekellyshow.com. What, Chris? It's called Hostile Nature. Hostile Nature, I'm almost positive it's on National Geographic. Chris, YouTube the video right now because even though they can't see it, I bet you we can get a little audio cut of it, and it would be hilarious to, to listen to. Get an audio cut of it. It's the first one, Hostile Nature Mountains. It, I think that was the name of the episode. And I'm only like halfway through the first episode, so I don't even know what else is coming on this, but it was stunning. Stunning. Speaking of stunning, allow us to take a moment and return to the news of the day. News that you may agree with, news I do not. Headline, BloombergLaw.com. Senators propose a $500 billion state and local government rescue. A Republican and a Democrat in the Senate are proposing $500 billion for state and local governments to aid parts of the country reeling from the corona pandemic. Bob Menendez of New Jersey and his Republican colleague Bill Cassidy of Louisiana are looking ahead. They want to establish a half-trillion-dollar fund to help the states hit hardest by coronavirus. It will be divided into three tranches, I don't even know what that word means, and distributed according to formulas that reflect the population, infection rate, and revenues lost. Governors and mayors across the country have been pleading for the federal government for additional aid as tax revenues plummet and demands for resources skyrocket. Allow me to set that headline aside for just a moment and pull up another one, a related one. This is from a few days ago. New York City adds nearly 4,000 people who never tested positive for the coronavirus death tolls. Basically, it was 3,700 people. They assumed they died of coronavirus. They never tested them for coronavirus, and they put them on the coronavirus death tolls. Which brings me to the third and final headline of our little rant here before I go off on all this. State lawmakers seek more than $41 billion in federal coronavirus aid, including a $10 billion pension bailout. That's just from Illinois. Illinois wants $41 billion, including $10 billion for, for their pension. I'm about to tell you something that you're not going to like but is so very true. And you're going to hear me repeat it a lot as we go along on our little journey. Hang on. Well, briefly, before I get back to my political rant, I gathered the boys around to watch the chick flying off the tower video. So Mitchell and Chris checked it out. Uh, Did I sell it short, gentlemen? I did not, did I? Not even, uh, yeah. You know what? We are going to post the video, for those of you who don't want to go searching for it, we're going to post it on the show's Twitter account. Now, I have my own Twitter account, at Jesse Kelly DC. 
J-E-S-S-E-K-E-L-L-Y-D-C. We have a separate account that's just for the show. Chris runs all that. It's at Jesse Kelly Show. Just at Jesse Kelly Show. He's going to take a video clip of this and put it up there so you can see it. The most amazing thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Even though I told you what's coming, when you witness it happen, your job will drop. Your job will drop. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Back to my political thing. It's not my job to bail out your state if you chose to destroy your own state's economy. As a federal taxpayer, it's not my job. And this is what has always worried me about so many of these lockdowns. You remember I've told you, these states, these cities, they cannot print money like the feds can. So what are they doing? Their plan is to suck up a bunch of federal taxpayer dollars. Why would New York City add 3,700 people to the coronavirus death rolls that they never even tested? Do you know that they get paid now for every coronavirus test? Oh, that was part of that lovely stimulus package everybody wanted. Oh, we got to pass a stimulus package. We have to pass a stimulus package. The stimulus package that ran out of money for small businesses in about half a second. The $2 trillion stimulus package that your great-great-great-grandkids will still be paying off. Yeah, that sounds sounds good, right? Everything sounds good. Well, we should, I'll tell you what we should do. We should, we should pay the states for every coronavirus death. That'll help, right? Yeah, that goes right up there with the city of London killing all the cats during the Black Plague. That sounds nice. Except the cats were eating the rats. You see, here is an undisputed fact. Fact. It applies to everything. It applies to the civil rights movement. It applies to the gay rights movement. It applies to the Tea Party. It applies to the women's rights movement. It applies to the Me Too movement. It applies to coronavirus. You want to know what that fact is? Every movement. Every movement, no matter what it is, no matter how noble its beginnings, becomes a scam. Every single one. New York City wants money. What do you think? You think Cuomo's been out there playing footsie with Trump every single day because they get along? Cuomo's out there playing footsie with Trump because he wants the goodies to keep coming. You think all these Democrat governors like that idiot Whitner or Whitmer or whatever her name is of Michigan, Newsom of California, you think they're slaughtering their own economies, their own budgets without a plan? Oh, they have a plan. I'm going to be a tyrant. I'm going to ban my people from going to the beach. And then when my budget shortfall is astronomical because I slaughtered my own economy, I'm going to look to the federal government and say, hey, coronavirus is what's killing us. It was definitely coronavirus and not my fault at all. You should definitely give us some money. Illinois, I make fun of them, but I actually give them credit for being the only ones genuinely honest about it. They're the ones who wanted $10 billion to bail out their pension plan. <laughs> These people, of course they did. Spend years, and this is what they all do. 
all these governors, all these state lawmakers, they all run for office. And what do they promise? I mean, how many people, Republican or Democrat, how many people do you know run for office and promise, I'm going to leave you alone? I'm going to get the government out of your life. I'm going to stay out of your way. Uh, but what if what if this happens to me? It's not my problem. You're going to be free. You're going to live free. Freedom comes with consequences, but you will have freedom. How many people run for office on that platform? Let's start with zero and work our way up from there. Everybody runs on what? Everybody. I'm going to give you this, and I'm going to give you that, and I'm going to protect you from this. I'll take care of that. Run, oh, oh, you're upset about this? I got you covered. You're, oh, I'll do this for you. I'll do that for you. They all run on giveaways, every one of them. I'm going to give you this. Here's something for you. Uh, you know what? Elect me. I'll give you this. And now, especially the state and, and local ones, all those promises can't be kept now. You know what state budgets look like right now? Especially the states who locked themselves down. And don't give me this, well, Jesse, New York had to. There's an outbreak there. No. Even if you want to be a pro-lockdown person, New York City had to. Contrary to popular belief and contrary to the belief of, you know, just the people inside of New York City, New York is a big state. Even the New York City area is a big area. Long Island is not New York City. You want to offend someone in Long Island? Tell them it's New York City. Albany is not New York City. New York is a huge state. They have a bunch of different parts of it. You can't treat the entire state of New York like you treat New York City. And I'm not an anti-New York City person. I live for New York City. It's pretty much my favorite place in the world, as I told you before. States should treat their own cities differently. The country should treat every state differently. But that's not going to happen. That gigantic sucking sound you hear, that's your tax money for the rest of your life being used for the disastrous, disastrous, embarrassing response we've had to this virus. I, uh, they will write books about it one day. They will. They'll write books about it. it may, and it may not even be that far in the future. They're going to start writing books about our response to this thing and how it's absolutely crushed us. Two trillion dollars and now they want more. And you know what's funny? They're going to pass it too. You watch. They'll pass more. You know, it's worth revisiting. It's really worth revisiting how this all began. You remember how the Black Plague began? We started our show with all of it with an argument. How this began? The lockdown insanity. I mean, and remember this. And this is important because there are going to be a whole lot of people, and already are, a whole lot of people who feel dumb, can't admit they were wrong, and they're going to try to be revisionist historians, and they're going to say things like, we had to lock down. 
every expert said it's for the greater good. Isn't it funny, by the way, how all the pro-lockdown people use the exact same language that climate change people use? Hang on. This is The Jesse Kelly Show. You remember how all this began, right? Let's not forget. It's not that we want to point fingers or blame, but let's not forget. We have, well, a wrecked economy, wrecked businesses, 30 million unemployed already. That number's going up. Influential coronavirus model reduces Florida's projected deaths by over 70%. That's from just the news. I'm not going to read the article. Not going to bother with it. But this all began with doomsday models. You read them. I read them. How many times did you turn on the news and see them? I mean, unless you want to dig into it, if you're the trusting type, which everybody knows I'm not, I'm a jerk, so I didn't trust any of them. But if you're the trusting type, or maybe you're just too busy, you turn on the news for 15 minutes a night. What did you see? You remember the numbers? I know you remember. What's that? What's that word? Starts with an M, Chris? Million. 50 million are going to die. Two million in America alone. Okay, one million. All right, everybody go home, and maybe, just maybe, it'll be 200,000. But look, it probably will be more than that. It's only going to be one or 200,000 if you lock in your home, and you're not locking down enough. Why aren't you locking down? You're, you're not locking down. Why are you outside? Why are you talking to people? Okay, not not one or 200,000. Okay, 90,000. All right, all right, that was wrong. It's 80,000. Okay, but wait. All right, 80,000 was a bit off. It's 70. Now it's down to 60. Word is they're going to project it again even lower. Now, 60 is not nothing. That's a a pretty daggone big deal to the 60,000 people who are now going to be in the ground and their families. But 60,000 deaths, mostly in just a few locations, that's not what you sold us when you decided to destroy the greatest economy in the world. You can't promise me 50 million dead worldwide and deliver 100 or 200,000 and have the upper hand here. You don't get to do that. There has to be, there has to be an accounting for that. That's not a small deal. You don't get to get off with the, well, I'd say that's good news. No, 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 no. You don't get to do that. You don't get to try to 
put this back on people on my plate either and say things like 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 these people have said to me, friends of mine, what? I guess you want more people to die. No, no, you're not going to change the subject. No, that's that's like arguing with your wife. You're not you're not going to change the subject now. No, no. The subject is you said 2 million Americans were going to die. That's what you said. You said best case scenario, best case scenario, 200,000 or maybe 100,000. That's what you said. And in order to justify sending 30 million people to the unemployment rolls, you said those numbers. If those numbers do not come out, turn out to be accurate, which in no way are they going to be accurate now. We already know they're a bunch of crap. You have to be held accountable for it. Not me. That's on you. There has to be an accounting for getting so much of this wrong. Because when you take a step back from it, the absolute economic devastation is stunning, isn't it? And we don't even keep in mind. This is going to come in stages. We don't even know it all yet. We don't even begin to know it all yet. I looked at a headline out of Reuters already. The UN is predicting hundreds and hundreds of thousands of child deaths across the world due to what? The economic downturn. What have I told you from the very beginning when everybody was screaming at me? A strong economy is the best public health you can have. What do you think pays for all those hospitals and doctors and nurses, roads, schools, firemen, police, everything you know and love? What do you think pays for all that? The economy pays for all that. You don't intentionally ruin it. Intentionally, and I cannot drive this point home enough, you do not get to say there was no other choice because other nations in this country made different choices. Everybody did not lock down. They did not. Other nations looked at the data, looked at the same numbers, and said, no, we can, well, we can't lock down. We can't. Sweden didn't even close its schools. Well, we well. why would we close our schools? Young people aren't even really affected by the thing. Gee, that sounds almost like common sense. You know what doesn't sound like common sense? Taking a massive country, geographically, a country of 330 million people, with every kind of different geography you can possibly imagine, And treating them all the same. And telling everybody they should do the same things. That's something a child would come up with. And if I sound angry, I know you're thinking I don't normally, and and I'm not normally. I am angry. Because it was accepted because, quote, experts and doctors said it. You know, I told you at the beginning of the show, the doctors used to make people smoke during the Black Death. Doctors in America used to prescribe heroin for a cough. I don't care that doctors said it. 
It sounds like something a small child would come up with. Well, what we're going to do is lock everyone in their homes. Wait, what? We can't. We can't do that. What do you what do you lock everyone in their homes? What are you talking about? That would destroy the economy. Uh, it's the only way. Well, we can't. What do you mean? There's no other solution? That is something a 5-year-old would come up with. Honey, um there are a bunch of people sick. What do you think everybody should do? I think everybody should go home and stay inside, Mommy. That's what it sounds like to me. It sounds like a child's solution to something. Which would be fine, except for the fact we've done it as a nation. And now, you remember? Now, I'm not saying this is going to happen here. It's, of course, not. This is an extreme example. But you remember all the fallout from the Black Plague when I told you about it? Even down to things like racial segregation? You can't even put a price on. You can't put a, uh, uh, you can't put a definition on all the fallout that we'll get from this beyond just the mind-numbing debt we've piled on in a month, month and a half. What, two, three, four, five, six trillion? What's the T number going to be at the end of a month and a half, two months? People, the devastation from that alone is going to be, oh, gosh. The juice was never worth the squeeze. It wasn't. And now, I'm sorry, I know this is going to upset you. I'm looking at this open business again task force full of a bunch of swamp rats and bankers that don't inspire me either. But maybe the most devastating part, Chris, I'll tell you in a second. Jesse Kelly. Chris, you want to know what the worst part is? Now things have gotten serious. Headline, U.S. running out of frozen pizzas amid ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Perhaps the largest industry to see its demand climb as high as ever is grocery stores. From mega corporations, supermarkets to local grocery shops, stores are struggling to keep many items in stock. First, it was the toilet paper craze, which was really weird, by the way, Chris. I never understood that toilet paper thing. I still nobody's gonna nobody's ever gonna explain that to me in a way to make in a way that it makes it sense. Anyway, then it was the cleaning supplies from sanitizing wipes to hand soap. Now a hard to find new item happens to be frozen pizzas. Newman's own president and CEO Dave Best told Adweek that his company's sales are up 190 percent since the start of the pandemic. That particular food item seeing a big demand, but the problem is. They're running out of necessary ingredients. Again, it screws up the supply chain stuff. Chris, are you a a frozen pizza man? I got to be honest. I still love them, man. I'm 38. Should I not love them anymore? Is that wrong? I do love them, though. I I could, 
if the wife, if the old ball and chain wasn't around to talk about the health, I would eat a frozen pizza a day. I swear I would. Now, back to the task force. One of the most hilarious things I've seen was Trump constantly needling Mitt Romney at every turn. Trump has this coronavirus task force, the reopen business task force, and he opened every single business, every single or opened every he invited every Republican senator to join his open business task force except for Mitt Romney. Here he is talking about it. On Thursday, the White House announced a congressional task force for reopening America. It included every Republican senator but Mitt Romney. Yeah. Does that show that you're still, you're still holding a grudge against yeah, Mitt Romney? Yeah, I just, yeah. No, I'm not a fan of Mitt Romney. No, I had 52 Republican senators. He was the uh, governor. You don't want his advice. Well, I just don't think, uh, you know, I'm not a fan of Mitt Romney. I don't really want his advice. Go ahead, please. People are trying to bash Trump for that. Hear me out on this. Whichever side you fall on, whether you're a Trump guy or a Mitt Romney guy, I doubt very much you like both of them. But hear me out on this. That's Mitt Romney's fault. And Mitt Romney has nobody to thank but himself. Nobody to thank but himself. You see, if you actually want to make a difference, if you actually want people to listen to you, to hear you, you have to approach people a certain way. Let's say, let's say there was a fat person that worked here in the building. Let's say every day I walked by this fat person and said, hey, fatty, when are you going to lose some weight? Every day. Hey, fatty, get in the gym. And then that person one day woke up and thought, you know, I need to lose a little weight. I really do need to do something about this. I need to talk to some people about that with some ideas. Do you think that person's going to ask me for my ideas? Or do you think that person views me as a mean jerk that wouldn't, that wouldn't pour a glass of water on me if I was laying in front of them on fire? You decide in this life how influential you're going to be with certain people. You do. And people seem to have this impression that everybody should just forgive and forget as soon as I want to be involved in something. And when you look at Mitt Romney's credentials as the governor, as a businessman, sure, purely credential-wise, sure. But when you are Mitt Romney and you make the decision as a senator that before you even get to D.C., you're going to pen a real nasty anti-Trump letter for, I think it was the Washington Post. Then you're going to be the only dissenting voice as a little protest thing to, to vote, you know, for impeachment. You have made the decision, not Trump, you have made the decision that you are anti-Trump. That's who you are. That's part of who you are. You're the person calling somebody a fatty every day in the hallway. You don't get to then complain that you don't even get invited to the party. If you want to have influence, if you want to make a difference, you will do things a different way. 
People know that I voted for Donald Trump. I admitted it. Readily. I openly admit it. I was super anti-Trump during the primary. I voted for him in the general because Hillary Clinton's the Antichrist. Donald Trump has turned out to be, in my opinion, an outstanding president that has done so many things that I love, and I'm going to vote for him again. I'm willing to be critical when he does things I disagree with because I think it looks terrible as a man to wear another man's pom-poms for any reason. I don't put on my Trump pajamas. Overall, I think he's done an outstanding job, and I've said so. When I have things I disagree with, like the spending, like the lockdowns, I say so. Do you know that President Donald Trump reads my Twitter timeline? That's not something I'm guessing. It's not something I'm making up. I can't tell you how I know, but I know. Donald Trump reads my Twitter timeline. Do you know why? Because... I'm not a yes man, and I'm also not the resident anti-Trump GOP guy. Why would he ever read my timeline if he knows everything on there is going to be Trump sucks? Or why would he read my timeline if he knows everything on there is going to be Trump's a god, he's the best? You can't get anything useful from that. Nothing. When your mind is made up about the decisions someone makes before they ever make them, don't, don't ask to be approached. I see parents do this with their kids all the time. It drives me absolutely crazy. Burning them for honesty. All right, Billy, I need you to be honest with me right now. Did you throw that baseball and broke the neighbor's window? Just be honest with me. You can be honest. Yeah, Mom. Yeah, I did. Are you kidding me, you little jerk? Get over here while I beat the snot out of you and then make you go. Okay, well, that may feel good in the moment. Then the next time, don't ask me for honesty. Were you out at a party last night? You can tell me. You can be honest. Was there alcohol there? Oh, there was? Did you have some? Oh, you did? You're grounded for life. Give me your cell phone. You're never... Okay, the next time he goes to a party, you're not going to get the honest truth, are you? Because you just burned him for it. Do not burn me for honesty. Do not burn people for honesty. Mitt Romney did this to himself. This is not Donald Trump's fault. This is Mitt Romney's fault. When you decide, as he did, I'm anti-Trump this, I'm anti-Trump that, then when the time comes for you to really make a difference, if you really want influence, I'm a United States senator, I want the president to listen to me. No, if you really wanted that, you would have conducted yourself differently. There are plenty of Republican senators on that open business task force who have had public disagreements with Trump. Plenty of them. But none of them set themselves up as the resident anti-Trump Republican. If you want to be that, fine. You can be the resistance hero. You're going to be Mitt Romney. All the leftist newspapers are going to print you. You're going to get invited on all the leftist cable shows, and that's fine. I'm sure he's going to write a book and sell a lot of copies. But when the time comes to really make a difference... You're not invited, brother.
And when you don't get that invite, look in the mirror. That's where the trouble lies. The Jesse Kelly Show. Joining me now, one of the very, very, very few people who was out in front of this entire debacle, the great Sean Davis at the Federalist, co-founder of the Federalist. Sean, from the very beginning, you were loud, extremely loud about the fact that you thought the models were crap. And uh, they've proven to be total crap. We just have, we now have this new adjusted one that they over, they overestimated Florida's by 70% their their projected deaths. How did you know early on? I mean, as far as I know, you're not some doctor, are you? No, I, I am not a, a doctor. Um, I, I figured it out early on, uh, mainly because I, I had spent a lot of time in my career doing various types of financial and statistical modeling. Um, and there's just certain things that set off red flags uh, in models. And so when I saw these really, really high numbers. I thought, you know what, it's, it's possible, uh, but let's actually look under the hood and see what's going on with the engine of these models. And what I saw was that rather than having like a step-by-step kind of phased process built in that made logical sense based on what we know about how diseases work, this thing just predicted death and then tried to reason backwards. When logically what you would expect to see was uh, let's model how many people are susceptible, how many get infected, how many are symptomatic, how many are then hospitalized, how many go to the ICU, how many get put on ventilators, and then from there, how many die. And that wasn't at all what happened in this model. Uh, and when you look into it and you see that the, the internal assumptions are garbage and the internal logic is garbage, you can know for a fact that the results are going to be garbage. What... Can you explain a little bit for me? Because a lot of people don't understand, and frankly, I don't. What exactly is a model? Is this some computer program you're dumping info into? Is it an Excel spreadsheet? Is this a piece of paper? Explain the kind of model. What is it? So a a model is basically, you can do it in any of that. You could sketch one out on a piece of paper. You could do one in Excel. You could hard code one into various stats programs. But all a model is at its core is a way of taking uh, different assumptions about various inputs, throwing those inputs in, and then seeing what comes out. Like you can model anything. You could model uh, what you think the temperature is going to be today. Your inputs might be, well, that it's spring, um, what time of day it is, where you are on the earth, and then ta-da, you're going to get a range for for what your temperature is probably going to be at noon today in Houston. Uh, There's nothing magical or fancy or or, or anything particularly difficult to understand about them. What differentiates models really is is just how complex they get and how many inputs they end up have. But all models are just a way of throwing in some inputs and getting an output. How did they get this one that wrong? Explain that to me. Uh, is it i don't assume let's assume let's go with the assumption that i don't I think all these people were trying to bring down the world's economy on purpose they are highly educated infectious disease doctors 
How did they look at information and say, oh, this is going to happen? And Sean Davis look at information and say, this is a bunch of crap. How does that happen? Uh, I think the reason there's got it wrong, especially in hospitalization. So it's worth stepping back. The IHME model wasn't crazy on deaths. Uh, I, I think they ranged, they're right around like now 60,000 deaths through mid-August. I think when they started, they might have been around like 100 or 200. So that's a 2x difference. It seems really, really large. You say, yeah, that's 100, 200% difference. Um, given the, the uncertainty, I think those were not uh, unrealistic. What was crazy were the hospitalization numbers. And recall, it was hospitalization uh, that caused us to have to flatten the curve. We, we were never told that we could reduce deaths from the disease. What we were told was we don't want to overrun the hospital systems and have a whole bunch of excess deaths. And when you drill down into their model, you saw that there was no real logical, defensible connection between their deaths and their hospitalizations. Like I said, a normal person would start out at, at the bottom up with how many people are going to get infected. They'd model that, and then they'd work their way toward hospitalization and death. This particular model, which was used to justify all kinds of uh, lockdowns and job destruction, started with deaths and then reasoned backwards. Um, so that right there, garbage in, garbage out. If you have bad logic and bad assumptions, you're going to have a bad model. Where do we go from here, Sean? Because, I look, I've given up any hope whatsoever that anybody is going to be held accountable for this, that anybody who's been wrong about everything is going to admit they're wrong. People just lack the self-confidence to admit they're wrong. But from here on, Sean, everything I see right now, I, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer. It's all disheartening. We're talking about passing another massively wasteful bill. We're talking about staying locked down in some states forever. We're talking about governors now deciding which well, – we're going to add new businesses to the essential rules. We have police drones flying above people's yards. This, this is like a horror story for me, man. It is. It's, it's total madness. And what I find so disheartening, which I think is such a great word that you use, is how willingly we just took it. I mean, three months ago, rather normal country. Granted, our media is corrupt and insane and evil, but it's been like that for a while. But, but as a whole society, we were functioning normally. We were pretty free. And, and now we're, we're banned from going to church. Uh, if you live in Michigan, you can't even buy garden seeds. Can't, you can't go into the gardening section. Um, it, it's really, really scary because if you've ever read history, government power is generally, uh, with the American Revolution being an exception, is generally a one-way ratchet. Um, so, you know, what? We'll, we'll get through this virus. We have lots of time in human history, lots of viruses, and, and humanity always manages to get through it. What I worry about is what do we look like on the back end when we get through this? What do our liberties and freedoms look like? And how much government, uh, how much power will the government have taken from us in the process? Sean, can you at least play it out for me? Because I can't wrap my mind around the amount of money we're spending. What does this kind of debt actually mean for a regular American like me, like a regular American like the normal you know, listener? Because I feel like there's so much debt and we haven't really experienced the negative effects of it yet, what is it going to mean when we just, you know, in a two-month span, add another five or six trillion to the debt rolls? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I, I, debt generally works at the government and nation level, just like it does at your household level. So it's not always the, the, the total number of debt that gets you, because uh, you can have a mortgage, you can have student loans and some credit card debt, which, which will add up to some big numbers. Um, but it, it's not 
it's not overwhelming you or your ability to pay. What kills you is the debt service or the interest costs. And so when you have an environment where interest rates are really, really low and you have a lot of economic growth, uh, you're able to bear the burden of that, what do we have, $25 trillion in debt, something insane. You, you can bear that burden pretty well. But as interest rates go up and if the economy contracts, if we have these entitlements explode like we expect them to do demographically, like Social Security and Medicare, we're going to be in really, really big trouble in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And I, I'm not sure we can just grow our way out of it when we're going to end up with baby boomers who are increasingly retiring out of the labor force, uh, with people not having as many kids to support everyone who, who's retired on Social Security and Medicare. And then we have all these debt service costs to nations like China that we have to pay. It, it is a huge, huge problem, and it is the looming uh, crisis and threat that we're facing that no one in power wants to deal with. What does it mean for me? Does it mean the dollar's worth less? Does it mean higher taxes? Does it? I mean, is it worse than that? What does it mean? It means all of that. It, it, and, and generally what government will do is they'll try to inflate away the debt. So inflation is great when you're a borrower. So we're going to have a lot of inflation. The Fed will try to inflate it away, which means your money will be less. We're going to have higher taxes to have to pay for the interest costs. We're going to have lower growth because those higher taxes are a drag on it. it, it it's all of the uh, above of, of bad outcomes. Sean Davis of the Federalist. Read everything he writes, people. He's been all over this. I appreciate you very much, my friend. Thanks for having me on, Jesse. Be good, brother. Well, that wasn't very uplifting, Chris, but he's right. And the dude has been all over it. He called it from the beginning. He's like, this model is crap. But we are still America, and we're still Americans. And I have a headline here that might be the most American thing ever. Hang on. The Jesse Kelly Show. America, baby. Record gun sales in March. I love this country. You know what's funny is cultures are different. We talk about culture all the time on the show. Even cultures within a nation are different. But every nation has its own culture. It has things it prioritizes. That's always been that way based on the values of a society. It's just that you remember that one crazy Asian step culture we talked about, Chris, the people who killed uh, Cyrus of the uh, the Persians, I believe it was, the Achaemenid Persians. Yes. The culture and their culture was they would smoke weed all the time and drink wine out of the skulls of their dead enemies. And the wives were all common wives. Like you'd have your wife and she's your wife, kind of. But if another man would like to enjoy her company, he had to be courteous enough to leave his bow outside of your little tent so you knew. If you didn't leave the bow, that was... See, that's totally foreign to us, by the grace of God. I hope I don't go home and find a bow outside of my house today, but that's totally foreign to us, but it's their culture. 
And American culture is so unique because you see all the other responses to this pandemic across the world. And so much of it's universal. You know, fear, anger, economy, disease, all these other things. We're the ones that buy guns. We as Americans, when you scare us, do not hide under our bed. We buy guns and ammunition. <laughs> I should clarify, though, and let me clarify this. couple things. When it comes to buying weapons, when it comes to preparing for civil unrest or the apocalypse or who knows, whatever you happen to be preparing for. Buy shoes, too. You know what your lifeblood is. You know one of the first things they teach you when you're training to be a combat soldier. Take care of your feet. Sounds kind of lame, right? Well, Jesse, I want... I want the new AR with the 10,000. What kind of boots do you have? How many good pairs of socks do you have? Before you buy the next 10,000 rounds of ammunition, take care of your feet. There are three things in life you never, ever, 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 ever go cheap on for any reason. One, Your bed. You spend one-third of your life in bed. Don't go cheap on something you spend 33% of your life doing. Two, tires. Do not get the off-brand tires. Do not get the cheap tires. Spend twice as much money on tires as you think you should. It's your life. It's the drivers around you. It's their lives. It's your family's life. Before you go cheap on tires, maybe pull out a picture of the wife, the kiddos. Their lives depend on you not going cheap on the tires. That's a reality. And finally, the third thing, anything you put on your feet. Put away the discount shoes. Put away the discount socks. Spend your money on your feet. It's your lifeblood. You know the Russian Spetsnaz, the special forces? Obviously, they're half insane. They don't have the budget, so they seriously spend half the time training them, just beating the crap out of them and making sure they can handle pain. I mean, they're very tough guys. Do you know that if they land in a mission and you break your leg, they'll shoot you? You are now a mission burden, and you get shot for that. To this day, they'll shoot you. They'll just kill you right there. You can survive a mission. You can actually perform on a mission with a broken arm, broken facial bone, a broken rib. You break anything below the waist, you are done. Your feet rot off your body. You are done. Buy socks. Buy shoes. That's one. Two. It's not my job to tell a man kind of weapons he needs, how many weapons he needs, how how much ammunition he needs. But let me just say, maybe you don't need another weapon. You know that you can only shoot one at a time, right? 
Maybe you need to get better with the one you have. Maybe you need more ammunition for the one you have. I'm not saying don't have a backup. By all means, have a backup. Have two. If you're a gun collector guy, buy a thousand guns. I just get a kick out of these people in their houses, single family homes. Something horrible breaks out like coronavirus. I'm going to buy more guns. Go buy more ammunition. Get out to your range and become faster and deadlier with the ones you have. You can only shoot one at a time. Go buy more ammo. I never, ever, 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 ever was in combat and thought, I wish I had another gun. People oftentimes have been in combat and thought, I wish I had more ammo. Or I wish I was faster and deadlier with the gun I did have. The Jesse Kelly Show. I feel like the opening about the Black Death today was a little dark. But how is there a sunny way I can talk about that? It was a little dark, though, wasn't it? It was a little, it was a little dark. Look, it's the Black Death, people. I don't know what you want me to do. I can't exactly put a sunny face on the slaughtering of half of Europe's population that were shoving people into trenches, by the way. If you missed our Black Death slash Mongol siege opening... There's a podcast for that. It's mine. The whole show is podcasted right after the show. You can find it on iHeart. You can find it on Google. You can find it on Spotify. You can find it on Apple if that's your thing. You can follow us on social media. My personal Twitter is at DC. The show media where Chris puts good clips up every day. You can find that at Show. If you want to email me, I cannot possibly write all of you back but i will read every one of them jesse at jessekellyshow.com that's jesse at jessekellyshow.com it's monday we survived we'll survive another day that's all Jesse Kelly Show. You know, your house smells. Don't get mad. Don't get mad. My house smells too. I'm not, I'm not indicting you. I'm sure you keep a clean home, but just time means you're going to acquire smells, whether those are cooking smells that get in your paint, your carpet. Maybe they're animal smells. Maybe you're a smoker or someone else was. Just living creates smells. I didn't realize that my home had a smell to it until I got my first Eden Pure Thunderstorm, the greatest air purifier I've ever ever owned in my life. This thing, I had it plugged in for two hours. I came back in the room and my air smelled so clean. 
I now own three of them. I'm not making that up. This thing has absolutely changed me on top of what it's done for my allergies. Go get one. Get two. Be like me and get three. Go to EdenPureDeals.com. Make sure you use the promo code JESSE. That gets you 10 bucks off and free shipping. EdenPureDeals.com. Promo code JESSE. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.